Would you please join with me in prayer? Gracious Heavenly Father, we are grateful for this season of the year where we are ever so reminded of the reality of your love in our risen Lord. And we thank you for this letter which we're beginning today that we might know we have eternal life. We pray, Lord, as we walk through this for the next season, that it would do a great work in all of our lives. And that you would take our minds and think through them. Take my lips and speak through them. Take our wills and bend them to your own. And take each and every one of our hearts and set them on fire with love for you and for your son, Jesus Christ. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Well, I don't know if you've been aware, but tucked back, way back in your Bible is this little letter called the letter of 1 John. John the Apostle is one of the original 12 apostles of Jesus. And at the time of his writing of this letter, he was the only surviving member of the 12. All the others had died a martyr's death. He wrote five books in the New Testament. The Gospel of John, which looks back historically and presents the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. First, second, and third John, which concern the present and how the church lives its life in the first century and in the 21st century. And then the book of Revelation, which looks to the future. And how, shows us how God will consummate history in the return of our Lord Jesus Christ. Second and third John are very short letters. We'll deal with them next summer. Uh, they're only one chapter each, but they're rich and, and wonderful letters to spend time in. And we know that John spent his later years in and around Ephesus before he was arrested and moved to the island of Patmos where he wrote the book of Revelation. So he wrote this letter to the churches of Asia Minor approximately 80, 85 A.D., which puts him at approximately 75 to 85 years old. So the church at this time all over Asia Minor is composed of second and third generation Christians. For some Christians, this was a time of fierce persecution. For others... The thrill was gone. The flame of devotion to Jesus was flickering. They were believers, but it was kind of meh. False teachers were infiltrating some of the churches. And some Christians were not living according to their profession of faith out in the community. So it's into those circumstances John writes this letter. And we will see, in an introductory fashion now, just what are his purposes for writing this letter to these churches? Well, I, I see four, really, that I think we need to focus on. And we're going to get challenged in our own walks as we walk through the letter. First, he's going to combat false teaching. This false teaching was infiltrating the early church. And it exposes false doctrines and promotes spiritual truth. John was not afraid to combat and engage the culture 
where the first century Christians lived, and he is not afraid to combat the 21st century culture today in which we live. We're going to be challenged here, brothers and sisters, in a good way, but we're going to get challenged. Secondly, John has an ethical purpose for writing. Specifically, he deals with the church's attitudes towards sin and the necessity that all Christians have to love one another. Love one another within our families and love one another within the church family. We're going to be challenged in that reality. Third, John has a pastoral purpose for writing. We will hear his pastoral heart for the church and has a wonderful heartbeat for the health of the church and for strengthening their faith in the reality of Jesus Christ and for genuine fellowship among believers in Christ. You will hear him frequently call us children, little children. And an 85-year-old disciple of Jesus has every right to call us that. Right? As one who was at least that old, John could tenderly refer to all the churches as his beloved children. And fourth, he writes that you, me, we all may know we have assurance of our salvation. That you may know you have eternal life. And so in knowing that, Not only his joy, but our joy is complete, as we heard in verse 4, which we're going to reference a little later. So I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles, and I encourage you here at Christ Church to bring your own paper Bible to church. I know that's outside of some of your traditions, but there's nothing like opening it up and letting the words jump off a page. And all of a sudden you realize the Holy Spirit speaking to you and you can literally write in it that a cell phone never will replace. All right? So, so think about that. And uh, one day we'll have pew chairs with a Bible in front of you. And I'll say, it won't be in the back of your bulletin. And I'll say, open up to page 769. One day, God willing, we'll get there. But until that time, it's in the back of your bulletin. Um, You can find it there or on your cell phone on the ESV app. (sighs) Verses 1 through 4 are a prologue. And it's an unusual structure and it can be a little confusing when you first read it. As Sybil read it, I look out at at people trying to listen. And it's, it's a little unusual. I will grant you that. So what is John exactly trying to say here? I love Eugene Peterson's message Bible. I always read it before I preach just because it's a dynamic equivalent translation. And he translates it like this. So don't look at the text now. Just listen to what, how Peterson translated this Greek verse. From the very first day we were there taking it all in. We heard it with our own ears, saw it with our own eyes, verified it with our own hands. The word of life appeared right before our eyes. We saw it happen. And now we're telling you in most sober prose that what we witnessed was incredibly this. The infinite life of God himself took shape before us. We saw it. We heard it. And now 
you can experience it along with us. The experience of communion with the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. Our motive for writing is simply this. We want you to enjoy this too. Your joy will double our joy. Isn't that great? So let's unpack these statements, returning back to the ESV, which is a better translation, by the way. Um, But let's look at these, and what is John saying to us? Well, first, and not surprisingly, he's saying that this is a historical event, a historical claim. You've heard that a lot from my lips, especially coming off last week. But verse 1, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. He describes Jesus as the word of life here. In his gospel, he opens it up. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He's talking about here the word of life and that this Jesus was there with God at creation. We're not talking about just anybody. Verse 2, he continues that. And the life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and testified to it, and to proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father, was made manifest to us. We're not being told here that Jesus Christ has life, or that Jesus Christ gives me my best life now life. No, he's saying that he is life. This is his salvation. Now and into eternity, Jesus is life. Here's one of the first things we can always say that made Christianity different from all other worldviews and religions. In every other religion, the founder is a prophet or a sage, and that founder says, here's what you do, and if you walk in these ways, you will be right with the divine. You can connect with the divine. You will become one with God, or you will be saved, however they say it. But John and Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Christianity does not say Jesus is a great prophet pointing the way to God. It says that he is God, and in him is life. And according to Easter, in this season that we find ourselves in, in the resurrection, God has come to save us, to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. To know him is eternal life, for he is life. And brothers and sisters, the the culture is open to this spiritual conversation now. It really is. But we need to remind ourselves that our culture breathes in the consumerism. I want to make my choices the way I want to make them. It breathes in the materialism. I got to have more stuff. Three, and it breathes in the individualism. You know, that I'm going to do things my way. So we need to keep that in the back of our minds as we're having these conversations with friends because these are idols of our day which will twist the true gospel. Because what John here is saying, we saw him with our eyes, we heard him with our ears, and we touched him with our hands. Why is he being so emphatic? Well, Barb Yarborough, who's the great New Testament scholar, Of ancient history, when you look at these terms, he says, the variety of verbs corresponds to a variety of witness attestation in ancient jurisprudence. In other words, he's not saying, uh, he's just not saying this to make conversation. John is saying this 
as a sworn deposition to be used in court. What he's saying is not just a nice story about Jesus. He's saying this really happened. They really saw him. He really lived. He really died. He really rose from the dead. It, it is really God with us because he has conquered death. Alleluia. Christ is risen. He's not just a wonderful teacher. He's God himself. Because when you think about it, if Easter is just a nice tradition with Easter bunnies and candies, which we've all eaten by now and gained 10 pounds, um, you're on your own, right? But if Easter is true and John is swearing absolutely that it is, you can trust it. It's a historical event and we can hang our hats on it. Secondly, it's not just a historical event. It's so that we can know God. Verse 3, that which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. You see, to have fellowship, to have communion with God is what the proclamation is all about. Because the message throughout the Bible is that you can be saved by his grace, not because you're a good person. And you are. But you can know that just by believing in him and trusting in his atoning work on the cross, you're accepted. You receive him, and you're accepted. And the good news is not merely a mechanism by which we can be saved, although it is it's part of it, but it's far greater than that. It's about the reality that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, born in a manger, crucified under Pontius Pilate, died and was buried, conquered death and was resurrected and ascended. He is now the Lord of Lords. He is summoning each and every one of us to live under his lordship and by his grace. Thus, we're saved. And it's a gift to be received, not to be earned. And that we through that relationship, we have fellowship with God the Father because he has fellowship with the Father and the Son. In other words, the beauty of Easter, the resurrection, is all about fellowship, being in the presence of God right now and into eternity, knowing God. We're being told here it's not enough just to believe in God. It's not enough to do religious services. It's not enough to even just to obey him. No, it means God has gone to infinite lengths to come near to you to have a personal relationship with you, and you can know him personally. God is not content to be a concept in your life. Not some idea of your own creation that gives you the warm fuzzies how you can be a religious person. No, he's the filter by which we can know and experience God. You need a filter to look at God and Jesus Christ is that filter by which we can look just like we need a filter to see the sun we need Jesus to see God the Father because God has become a human being and paid it all for us and he proved it in the resurrection and we can see his glory in a way that would otherwise overwhelm us literally just like Moses who said Lord show me your glory and God said ha it would overwhelm you, Mo. You can't stand here in the cleft of the rock and I will pass by and I'll just show you my backside. No. 
Jesus has come. The word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And we can see God for who he is in Jesus. So when you see the story of Jesus and you read the Gospels, you're seeing God in human form, our filter. You see his love. You see his humility. You see his compassion. You see his wisdom. God says, I can't show you directly, but here's my son. Look at him. You can come near. We can come near intellectually with all our questions. We can understand him better. We can grasp him better. You can read about God in human form, and he becomes someone we can relate to. And that's many people's experiences when they read the Gospels and when you read the Bible for yourself. He's real, and God is real. So let's apply this. God went to infinite lengths to get near to you, to get close to you, so that you can know him personally. He lost his glory. He lost his life. Now we, you, must be willing to get close to him. Go to great lengths to go close to him. Have you ever read for yourself the Gospels? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. God wants to be near to you, to know you, and to be close to you. You know if you want to get close to him, you're going to have to change. You have to put in some time. You have to change your life. You have to put him in the center of your life. And that means that God is not content to be a concept in your life. He went to infinite lengths to get close to you. Now, do what it takes to get close to him. We've got all kinds of opportunities to do that here. It's not meant to be a walk that's alone. We do this together in the body of Christ. Oh, many of our little churches are kind of winding down for the year, but it's not too late. Jump in. John is a challenge there for each and every one of us. But as we surrender our lives to him, we bask in his glory and his love, we have fellowship with him, we grow together in him. And such a life, number three, exhibits unsurpassed joy. Yes, it's a historical claim. Yes, we have eternal life in Christ as we surrender unto him and we know him personally. But such a life is a life of great joy. Look at verse 4. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. As people have fellowship with God in this way, increasingly we, we become a joyful people. And Christian joy is far removed from the commonly construed happiness, which is dependent upon outward circumstances. It certainly can include happiness, but Christian joy is much deeper and much richer in meaning. Joy is the presence of Jesus in our lives by means of the indwelling spirit. And joy describes a reality in life of genuine satisfaction intellectually, emotionally, and spiritually. Joy is an exalt 
spirit of the exaltation regardless of our circumstances. Joy is a sense of supernatural strength that can only come from the Lord. Nehemiah describes it as in 8 verse 10, the joy of the Lord is your strength. I have seen the joyless eyes of miserable people around our country and beyond. People who are barely scraping two nickels together and people who have it all can sometimes experience happiness, but without God, through Christ, they never experience authentic joy. The wisest and richest man who ever lived found out that when he sailed the high seas of life in an effort to find fulfillment, the man on whom the world exhausted himself and for whom the world was not enough discovered the bitter truth that in the end, every paycheck, the bottom of every bottle, and the morning after every one-night stand, there was no joy in any of it. Solomon describes all of those experiences in the book of Ecclesiastes. I encourage you to read it. Only God can grant joy to the human soul. Psalm 1611 expresses it this way. You make known to me the path of life in your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. The crown of joy can only be worn by those who have completely surrendered their lives to Jesus Christ. To his lordship. And have been adopted into God's royal family through his son, King Jesus. Like Johnny Erickson Tata, who in 1967 accidentally dived into the Chesapeake Bay and broke her neck. And has been a quadriplegic ever since. Who discovered that in her wheelchair she can know the joy of the Lord. And it has an impact on not only the disabled community, but in all of our lives in the Christian faith. Because she just exudes joy despite her wheelchair, despite the now that her spine is disintegrating at 73, despite the fact that cancer has returned to her life and she's going through chemotherapy again. When you hear her talk, you don't hear bitterness, anger. Why me, Lord, in despair? Oh, there's frustration. She will openly talk about the frustrations of what her daily routine is. But above all, there's joy. Because Jesus is king. She knows God. She recognizes his sovereignty over her situation. He is with her in her suffering and has empowered her life with contagious joy. Because she understands that to be a Christian is to live in his kingdom because the kingdom has come. Because when you walk as a follower of Jesus, our goal is to bring heaven to earth. This is a little bit of heaven on earth on Sunday mornings, brothers and sisters. And we carry this with us as we go out into this community. It's not, I give my life to Christ, oh great, I'm going to heaven, isn't that great? No, it's so much more than that. The kingdom is here. 
And she gets that. And Christian music artist Nancy Honeytree wrote a song for Johnny called Johnny's Waltz. And it goes like this, and Johnny sings this frequently. When she says, heaven is nearer to me. And at times, it's all that I see. Coming down to my ear, sweet music I hear, and I know that it's playing for me. For I am Christ, the Savior's own bride. And redeemed, I will stand by his side. And he will say, shall we dance? And our endless romance will be worth all the years that I've cried. That's just the first two verses. That's Johnny's joy in the present and for the future. Because she's going to get a new body just like you are in Christ. And that's joy for the present and for eternity. Because the banner of joy will always fly over the castle of your life when the king is in residence there. Joy is the response of the soul that is rightly related to God through the knowledge of Jesus Christ as their Savior and Lord. Let's make that a reality for us, friends, because it's historically true. We can walk in his presence knowing our Lord in lives of unsurpassed joy that are great encouragements to one another and to those outside these walls. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what a great encouraging message to launch our series into. And that even John today can have his joy being completed as we walk in the reality of this grace and truth. And I pray that as we do so, Lord, I ask that you would pour out your spirit upon each and every one of us. Challenge us where we need to be challenged. Encourage us where we need encouragement. And help us to know in increasing measure the reality of your love for us in Christ. Do that good work in us, Lord. And awaken us to reality of that in increasing measure now and forever. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.